Hello everyone and welcome back to The World's Last Night. My name is James Thayer. Today I have a unique episode for you and a unique reading. Today is actually MLK Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And every year, almost every year, I try to traditionally read Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King Jr. So this was written in 1963, April 16th, and it's when... Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was in the jailhouse in Birmingham. And so I'm going to actually read the letter and give commentary as I go. If you've never read this letter before, you're going to be kind of struck by how well it is written. And also, it's somewhat like one of the epistles. I mean, it, in tone, it's what it reminds you of. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. was a good man in some regards and most likely a terrible man in other regards. Um, he fought for justice. He uh, did so nonviolently. He was a visionary leader. And yet history has sort of glossed over what seems to be the truth about his philandrian, that he um, cheated on his wife, possibly with multiple women. So you can delve into that with what you, how you will. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we're supposed to celebrate people for what they did well and righteously and good. You know, King David in the Bible, we celebrate him for defeating Goliath, for his faith in God, for being a man after God's heart. We don't celebrate him because he uh, stole Bathsheba and had a man murdered in order to steal his wife. Uh, Gandhi, we celebrate his peaceful resistance. We don't celebrate his racism towards black people. Churchill, we celebrate him leading a nation during World War II to victory and holding things down in the UK, we don't celebrate his racism towards Indians. Everyone is flawed, and that really means that we should just offer grace to people for their flaws, but I do believe in celebrating their achievements and victories over the flesh, that is, their exercise of righteousness. So let's get into the letter itself. I'm just going to read it, and I'm going to stop every so often and maybe comment on something or another. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that comes from my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. So from the get-go, we know this letter is addressed to his fellow clergymen who have written him to tell him that his actions, he's going to, um, it's going to literally be called direct action, but his protesting um, at this time is unwise and untimely. And he is basically saying, you know, I'm really busy. My secretaries are really busy. I don't normally answer stuff, but I do believe that you are being genuine and loving in trying to reprove me in this. And so I thought I should take some time to explain why I believe this is the righteous thing to do. So he's not vilifying his critics. Rather, he believes his critics are genuine and he wants to explain himself. All right, next, next paragraph. I think I should indicate why I'm here in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the view which argues against, quote-unquote, outsiders coming in. 
I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliated organizations across the South, and one of them is the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Frequently, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, the affiliate here in Birmingham asked us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise, so I, along with several members of my staff, am here because I was invited here. I'm here because I have organizational ties here. So he's explaining the reason that he's an outsider coming into Birmingham, um, which some would say it's none of your business or whatever, you're stirring up trouble in Birmingham, is because he's part of these uh, various organizations that have um, partners in Birmingham, and he was specifically asked to come to Birmingham. So a present-day example of this would be the many um, pundits, social media influencers, political leaders that are invited to various college campuses around the U.S. to speak there by, you know, they're sponsored by clubs on campus. So he's saying, you know, these people asked me to come in, and that's why I'm here. Next paragraph. But more basically, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. So he is justifying that if justice exists somewhere and he is a visionary called by God to root out that justice, then he has the mandate to go there when he is called. So he's saying there's injustice in Birmingham. That's why I'm here. Now he references the prophets of the 8th century BC. I'm not sure which prophets he's talking about. Isaiah was in 600 BC, roughly written Um, So that would be before his time. So I'm not exactly sure which prophets he's talking about in Scripture. That's my ignorance, though. I'm sure he knows which ones. And he also references Paul of Tarsus uh, in the New Testament, who wrote most of the New Testament, being called to the Greco-Roman world or the Gentiles to preach the gospel. So, all right, next paragraph. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutual mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with a narrow, provincial, outsider, agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. That's a beautiful paragraph, and there's two very quotable sentences. One of them is, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Which is true, it spreads. You think if someone can get away with injustice in one you know, small part of town, they're going to try it again in another part of town. And it will spread when other people see they can get away with it. And then this next sentence, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Golly, that's beautiful. And it reminds you just how educated and what a wordsmith Martin Luther King Jr. was. His basic argument here is, if there's any issue inside the United States, if you're from another state and you're visiting a state, you're not technically an outsider. That's sort of like that last sentence was about. So, okay, here we go. You 
You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. I'm sure that none of you would want to rest content with a superficial kind of social analysis that deals merely with effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. It is unfortunate that demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham. But it is even more unfortunate that the city's white power structure left the Negro community with no alternative. He's using outdated term here, the word Negroes, in reference to black people. Um, but he's basically saying that you're right to, to be upset about the direct action I am taking, but you're wrong in not condemning the cause of that direct action. Now, between you and me, um, the direct action that Martin Luther King Jr. took was uh, nothing <laughs> like what you see protests happen happening today sometimes a lot of times things today turn into riots burn stuff down flip over police cars etc etc we're going to find out that that's not martin luther king jr's way that's not what he wants to do so really it's his uh things are more modest if anything it, incon it just inconveniences people which is still you know it's still awful like when people block roadways because they're protesting for like recently in recent times it's been trying to make awareness about climate change, blocking interstates, you know, people having babies in traffic and dying because they can't get to the hospital and whatever. Like, that's bad. Um, but it's nowhere near as bad as some of the rioting and, and other ways of uh, addressing grievances. So he's basically saying, yeah, maybe you're right to condemn this action, but... You're wrong in that you're not addressing what caused it, which in this case is going to be injustice, right? We've already talked about that. So let's continue. If any nonviolent campaign here, oh wait, in any nonviolent campaign, okay, in any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Now listen close to these because I think this is pretty awesome how he actually formulated this. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustice exists. Negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. So those are the four steps. The first one is you have to collect the facts to determine if injustice actually exists. Second, you negotiate. You try to solve it through negotiation. Third, you have to self-purify. And then fourth is actually the protesting and the direct action. I'll keep going. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thoroughly segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of brutality is widely known. Negroes have experienced grossly unjust treatment in the courts. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than in any other city in the nation. These are the hard, brutal facts of the case. On the basis of these conditions, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the latter consistently refused to engage in good-faith negotiations. All right, so he's justifying what has led to the fourth step that he mentioned, which is direct action. So he basically said that the facts were gathered. This is one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. There are all these issues going on with bombings of people's homes. So violence and oppression exists. So there's some facts. Negotiation, we've talked to the city fathers. I'm assuming that's going to be like councilmen and mayors and all that. And they won't negotiate in good faith. Now... He skips one. He hasn't actually gotten to the other two. So, okay, won't, won't negotiate in good faith. So remember the, the second two are self-purification and direct action. All right, the next paragraph. 
Then last September came the, uh, came the opportunity to talk with leaders of Birmingham's economic community. In the course of negotiations, certain promises were made by the merchants. For example, to remove the store's humiliating racial signs. On the basis of these promises, the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to a moratorium on all demonstrations. As the weeks and months went by, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. A few signs, briefly removed, returned. The others remained. As in so many past experiences, our hopes had been blasted, and the shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. We had no alternative except to prepare for direct action, whereby we would present our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscious of the local and national community. Mindful of the difficulties involved, we decided to undertake a process of self-purification. We began a series of workshops on non-violence, and we repeatedly asked ourselves, are you able to accept blows without retaliating? Are you able to endure the ordeal of jail? We decided to schedule our direct action program for the Easter season, realizing that except for Christians, this is the main shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this would be the best time to bring pressure to bear on the merchants for the needed change. So he says, hey, you know what? After we tried talking to government and they rebuffed us, we decided to talk to the business leaders and several of them agreed, you know, we would stop direct action, which is protesting, right? If they would remove humiliating racial signs from their premises. And then he says, well, we waited for weeks. A few signs were briefly removed, but they were put back. Others remained. And basically we were the victims of a broken promise. And so now he's going to try. Basically, he said, you know, we, we, we purified ourselves. We asked ourselves, are we able to accept blows without retaliating? Can we go to jail? And uh, we trained people in how to be nonviolent about protesting. So uh, is a, there's a process and a formula. And he's gone through the self-purification, negotiation. And so now... They're scheduling direct action programs for the Easter season so that it would affect the most people trying to purchase things. Aside from Christians, he said Christians don't shop around Easter. I'm not sure that's true anymore. Then it occurred to us that Birmingham's mayoral election was coming up in March, and we speedily decided to postpone action until after Election Day when we discovered that the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, had piled up enough votes to be in the runoff. We decided again to postpone action until the day after the runoff so that the demonstrations could not be used to cloud the issues. Likely many others, like many others, we waited to see Mr. Connor defeated, and to this end, we endured postponement after postponement. Having aided in this community need, we felt that our direct action program could be delayed no longer. Okay, so... <laughs> Oh my gosh, like such a good man. So he basically says, we actually put off the Easter stuff. We saw this election was coming up and it was really needed that this election goes smoothly. We didn't want to be instigators to cloud, you know, to cloud the issues basically of the day. So we waited until the sky was defeated in the polls and then we decided we couldn't wait any longer. So he's being courteous and civil, which... That he, that's a hallmark of MLK versus a lot of other people who have tried to address civil grievances. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? You are quite right in calling for negotiation. 
Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent res resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as so he's about to quote Socrates, come on. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. The purpose of our direct action program is to create a situation so crisis packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. I therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. Too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in a tragic effort to live in monologue rather than dialogue. So he understands negotiation, which is you have to, you can't negotiate unless you negotiate from a position of strength. And he's basically saying that unless we utilize direct action to give us some sort of leverage, we're only going to have a monologue. It's just going to be us speaking and no one's going to speak back to us. So we have to have a dialogue. They're going to have to speak back to us because we're going to have some form of leverage through direct action, through nonviolent tension. And the man's studied Socrates. Like, society just does not make leaders like this anymore, who speak this eloquently, who are this rational and intelligent and methodical in making sure they are virtuous and on the right side of things. He's not selfish. That's what I get from, from this letter anyways. I love this letter. At the same time, he just has a heart and a love for justice and wants to see uh, that justice come to Birmingham. All right. One of the basic points in your statement is that the action that I and my associates have taken in Birmingham is untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new city administration time to act? The only answer that I can give to this query is that the new Birmingham administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing one before it will act. We're sadly mistaken if we feel that the election of Albert Bootwell as mayor will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Bootwell is a much more gentle person than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to maintenance of the status quo. I have hope that Mr. Bootwell will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from the devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you that we have not made a single gain in civil rights without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. Lamentably, it is an historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture. But as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. I don't even know who that guy is, but some sort of philosopher or politician sounds German. Reinhold Niebuhr? Basically, he's saying that, uh, you know, we weren't going to wait until the new administration came in because the new guy is a segregationist also. So we're going to have to go about it and, and get going with this. Um, all right. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. 
One other thing I wanted to, to say is that thing that Reinhard Niebuhr said about uh, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals is 100% true, and it's interestingly so. And I think it comes back to Scripture in Proverbs where it says, uh, um, what's it say? Good character, bad company corrupts good character. Boom, that's it. And Jesus, you know, talking about, you know, not letting um, any of the Pharisees yeast into the dough. It really only takes a little bit of evil, a little bit of bad character to then spread to a really um, bad mentality among a mob. There's also this idea that in a mob, you are not fully, um, you are not fully responsible for your actions. If seven people flip a cop car over or, you know, whatever, or uh, an entire population of white people are oppressing black people or whatever it might be. It's not you individually doing something, so it's sort of negated in your mind, right? Seven people flipped the car. Eh, I, I contributed, but it wasn't really me. And uh, so same thing with like uh, when Caesar was uh, assassinated. He got stabbed by so many people, they couldn't really figure out who did it. So it's sort of people like to think it absolves them of their sin. It doesn't, but it definitely mentally makes them feel better about it. All right, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. True. The American Revolution is a testament to that statement. Frankly, I have yet to engage in, in, in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. That must be quoting a Supreme Court justice. And I'm assuming that was that came about during desegregation on one of the, the bills. And I should probably know what it, not bills, but verdicts, I should, uh, cases. I should probably know what it's from specifically. Maybe Plessy versus Ferguson. I don't know. Um, I'm kind of ignorant in that regard. But in any case, he's, this is interesting to me because this is we're not talking about slavery. We're talking about, uh, you know, post after slavery, segregation and um, civil rights issues. Right. But if we go way, way back in time and we talk about the Declaration of Independence, you if you read the Declaration of Independence, it is applied to everyone. Um, but whenever it was created, they actually were going to put a specific grievance in it against King George, basically s saying slavery is evil and you've caused it. <laughs> And they took that out because they didn't want to, they wanted to kick the can down to a further generation and they wanted to tackle one thing out of at a time. And I guess they felt like several people who had slaves would be against them if they had that provision in there. What you do find out is those same founding fathers are the ones that created societies for the abolition of slavery and probably most importantly, they actually literally put an end to the Atlantic slave trade. They basically said, we, you cannot import any more slaves, but they failed to abolish slavery in the Americas, causing people to 
basically make the children of slaves slaves in America. That's how there was a growing number of slaves, even after the slave trade ended. So our founding fathers basically said, wait, right? This isn't the right time. And to this day, uh, you sort of suspect they should have been bolder about it. I mean, I think Thomas Jefferson's the one that wrote that little provision. But you sort of feel like God was on their side. <laughs> I feel like God was on their side in the revolution. And I feel like it would have brought a great deal of righteousness and prosperity to the Americas had they just nipped it in the bud right there and not kicked the can down to further generations. They believed eventually because of how they wrote the Declaration, because of how they wrote the Constitution, that slavery would be eventually eradicated. They just didn't want to bite off too much at, at that time. And I think that that's, that's smart from a human perspective, but from a, a godly perspective, I feel like they, they just sort of missed out. They could have created a, a superior society had they have just not kicked that down the road and waited. All right, here we go. Next paragraph. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. Dang! God-given, that's a natural right. The natural law. That means the government didn't give the rights to the people. And thus the government can't take them away. Constitutional. He, Martin Luther King, understands a constitution applies to him no matter his skin color. Right? But it's being denied to him in practice. The nations of Asia and Africa are, mo are moving with jet-like speed towards gaining political independence, but we still creep at horse and buggy pace towards gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mother and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty, in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to a public amusement park <coughs> that has just been advertised on television, and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children, and see ominous clouds of an inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky, Golly, that's sad. And her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. Jeez, that's sad. Here's another thing. Like, Martin Luther King did not hate white people. He actually, like, worked with them hand in hand, right? And he doesn't even want his own child to have a bitterness towards white people. At this time, you know, when he wrote this, he's actually, he's, he's listing it in a line of, of grievances of things that have brought him pain and sadness in line with people actually being killed, seeing his daughter, his mind, her mind being corrupted by the world instead of having a Christ-like attitude towards people, which is everyone is made in the image of God, thus you love them for that reason and that reason alone. It doesn't matter what color their skin is. Okay.
and see her begin to distort personality by developing an uncle. Okay. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and are plagued with the inner fears and the outer resentments when you are forever fighting a denigrated and denigrating sense of no nobodiness. Then you'll understand why you find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over, and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a, day, day, ugh, a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance it may seem rather paradoxical for us to consciously break laws. One may well say, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. I would, ag I would agree with St. Augustine that un an unjust law is no law at all. <clears throat> okay, he even quotes St. Augustine. Do people even read St. Augustine anymore? If you want to read a great work by him, read his confessions. It's amazing. He is basically, he, he gave this all the reasons why he can't be patient anymore. The humiliation, the torment, how he's been treated his whole life. And it sounds like he doesn't want that to be passed on to his children. And he also sounds like he doesn't want his children to be jaded towards the rest of the world. And he goes in and talks about how there's two kinds of laws, just and unjust, and you are not supposed to follow unjust laws. I agree 100%. The difference in my mind is an unjust law breaks the natural law. An unjust law breaks God's law. And in the order of operations of our allegiance, we are first aligned to God, then to our parents, then to our government. So the government is kind of way down there in this in the structure of things. And if there is an unjust law on the books because it breaks God's law, we have the almost right to break it. Almost the responsibility to do so. That's sort of what he's saying. Okay, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A, oh, he's about to get into that. I'll see if he actually agrees with me. Um, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. Yeah, okay, agreed. And C.S. Lewis says the same thing. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, which, guys, he was a Catholic theologian. An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and natural law. Agreed, 100%. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation, statutes, and... 
are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives a segregator a false sense of superiority and a segregated a false sense of inferiority. Segregation, to use the terminology of the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber, who I've actually never read, substitutes an I-it relationship for an I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So he's saying it turns them into uh, a thing instead of a human. Hence, segregation is not only politically, economically, and sociologically unsound. True. Absolutely true. And no one reads, no one talks about this, but Robert E. Lee was a Confederate general during the Civil War. He fought for the Confederacy. He also hated slavery. He called it an uh, evil institution. And he, so he thought it was inherently evil, but he also thought the effects were evil, not just for, for black people, but also for white people. He basically said it held the South back from actually flourishing. So we can, I can do a whole podcast on Robert E. Lee and the generals of the Confederacy and the interestingness about who they were as a person versus, you know, what they eventually by the end of their, end of their life were fighting for. But, uh, yes, segregation also, it makes no sense economically because you're cutting out a huge swath of customers. That's stupid. It makes no sense sociologically because you are jading people against each other who should be united around a single flag. And, you know, politically, same deal because you're disenfranchising a group of people. So it's just a bad way to set up your your, your um, nation. Um, okay, he says it is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Is not segregation an existential expression of man's tragic separation, his awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness? Thus, it is that I can urge men to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court, for it is morally right. And I, I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances, for they are morally wrong. What a man. Tanya, they do not make them like this anymore. <laughs> political leaders. Our political leaders, they, they read Twitter. They don't read Augustine and... Thomas Aquinas and when they give they actually don't give reasons they don't give reasons they give platitudes you know for for what they want to do instead of actual the philosophy behind it they don't they don't do it because most of it's bankrupt there is no good philosophy behind it if they actually delved into it okay getting off course let us consider a more concrete example of just and unjust laws an unjust law is a code that a numerical or power majority group compels a minority group to obey, but does not make binding on itself. Boom. So, an unjust law is one where those who are in power are hypocrites. This is difference made legal. By the same token, a just law is a code that a majority compels a minority to follow that it itself is willing to follow. This is... This is sameness made legal. Let me give another explanation. A law is unjust if it is inflicted on a minority that, as a result of being denied the right to vote, had no part in en enacting or devising the law. That's 
Yeah, basically saying if they were in disenfranchised from enacting the law, why should they follow the law? Who can say that the legislator of Alabama, which set up that state's segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout Alabama, all sorts of devious methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters, and there, voters, and there are some counties in which, even though Negroes constitute a majority of the population, not a single Negro is registered. Can any law enacted under such cir circumstances be considered democratically structured? No, it cannot, to answer your rhetorical question. Sometimes the law is just on its face and unjust, unjust in its application. For instance, I have been arrested on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there is nothing wrong in having an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade. But such an ordinance becomes unjust when it's used to maintain segregation and to deny citizens a First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and protest. I hope you are able to see the distinction I'm trying to point out. I know... In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationist. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with willingness to accept the penalty. Yes! Holy crap, yes! That last part is the willingness to accept the penalty. No one preaches that anymore. If you do something that you believe is the right thing to do, take that, that clerk in Kentucky once gay, gay marriage was legalized. And she decided, I'm not going to do my job and issue marriage licenses to gay people. She has to accept the consequences of that. Even if she believes that it's unjust that she's being compelled by the state to break her religion. Um, she has to accept the, just, the consequences of that. And I think that lady ended up in jail for a while. But it's important that we understand that we have to accept the penalty. That includes if, if you're being bullied at school and your school has a zero tolerance policy on fighting, if you break that bully's nose, which is good, and thus you're breaking an unjust law, um, you have to also be willing to accept the penalty, which is you're going to get suspended also. And you knew that going into it. I submit that an individual who breaks the law that conscious tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the ground that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a, a massive act of civil disobedience. Look how well-read this man is. Now, he's uh, part of the clergy class. Martin Luther King was a, a reverend, right? So he's going to know the Bible. And he, he's quoting you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who were, they were commanded to worship an idol, right? But they were Jews, and so they worshipped the one true God, and they had to accept the consequence of being thrown into a furnace. Um, and then he talked about the early Christians under Nero being oppressed. Talked about the Boston Tea Party, and then he quotes Socrates. The I just love how this man leverages Christianity, not in like a stupid way. Like people today, they'll say, "Well, Jesus would be for that." Jesus wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be for that. Instead of actually like quoting scripture and knowing it, like they have to, you know, they Google it and they're like, "What does Jesus think about X, Y, and Z?" These people, they're uh, the, the knowledge is just empty. And I'm sorry if you find that offensive. 
I'm just saying, this man's writing from jail without Siri or Google, and he can off the top of his head list these examples. Right? Um, from Scripture. And yet, today, Christians and people posing as Christians wield Jesus about without actually quoting his words. They just have this like weird sense of who Jesus is in their mind, and they're like, yeah, he would be totally into that or totally against that, instead of an actual reflection of who he is. Anyways, it bothers me. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal, and everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. Even so, I am sure that, had I lived in Germany at the time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers. If today I lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I would openly advocate disobeying that country's anti-religious laws. Which, by the way, all across the world, Christians have dealt with. Christians are still the number one most oppressed people group and have been, I guess, since the time of Nero. <clears throat> but um, there's a good book called Tortured for Christ I totally recommend. And it's about a man uh, who lived under Nazi rule and then communist rule right after that, after World War II ended, because Romania, where he lived, became communist. And he was a pastor. And he just talks about how living in a communist country as a Christian is nearly impossible and it will cost you. Because if you don't know, the philosophy behind communism is the state is everything. And the state, the government is your God. And there cannot be any gods greater than that. That's why, well, all communist countries suppress religion. And MLK is basically saying, if I lived in the communist country, or under German in Germany under Hitler rule, I would do the same thing. I'd break the laws. And so he's saying that these laws of segregation um, are unjust just like those, and I'm breaking them because of that. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Now, this is the one that is most convicting of me, because I would consider myself moderate on most issues, including social justice issues. Um, and for the most part, I err on the side of being against people inconveniencing you while you're driving to work and all of that. Now, that, though, is a different kind of direct action, the kind that we experience nowadays anyways, compared to what he's talking about. So 
I think that you should justly be upset and angry when people riot and burn your city down in Baltimore. Um, unjustly doing those things. That's not what MLK did. That's not what MLK preached. That's not his method of direct action. Uh, so it's hard to get behind people's causes like that. But I will say it is convicting MLK to basically say there's, there's a type of person who agrees with your goal but does not agree with how you're going about it, <clears throat> and they're frustrating. Um, and I guess I understand that. Um, and so that's something definitely that I think about and that is convicting of me because I definitely err on the side of order over disorder unless, as I guess MLK said, that step one actually turns out to be true. Remember, step one is you have to do an investigation and find all the facts. And then you go to self-purification, which means you're not going to do anything violent. Um, and then finally, you can go to direct action. There was another step in there. Uh, oh, negotiation and then direct action. I don't feel like really any protest nowadays does that, especially that self-purification bit. Um, but it is still something to think about. Okay. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and that when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace, in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace, in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. We merely bring to the surface a hidden tension that is already there. We bring it out in the open, where it can be seen and dealt with, like a boil that never that can never be cured so long as it is covered up, but must be opened with all its ugliness to the natural medicines of air and light. Injustice must be exposed. With all attention its exposure creates to the light of human conscience and the air of national opinion before it can be cured. In your statement, you assert that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But is this a logical assertion? Isn't this like condemning a robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't it like condemning Socrates because his unswerving commitment to truth and his philosophical inquiries precipitated the act by the misguided populace in which they made him drink hemlock? If you guys don't know, Socrates... Um, was forced to commit suicide by drinking hemlock. So that's what he's getting at. Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion of God's will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see that as the federal courts have consistently affirmed, it is wrong to urge an individual to cease his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the quest may precipitate violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. True. Thank you, sir. Okay, so he is basically saying it's nuts for you to say that by our nonviolent action we're going to create violence and thus we should not have nonviolent action. It is uh it's blaming the victim. Okay. Uh where am I? 
I'd also hope that the white moderate would reject the myth concerning time in relation to the struggle for freedom. I have just received a letter from a white brother in Texas. He writes, All Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably, inevitably cure all ills. Oh man, he's actually preaching what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Um, which is to say that something is better on Thursday because it is Thursday and today is Wednesday. That uh, the flow of time actually creates positive progress that for some reason just because time has passed we are more advanced now than the people living a hundred years ago it's a full it's a logical fallacy which means it's a false notion and he's basically calling that out actually time itself is neutral it can be used either destructively or constructively more and more i feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use this time creatively, and the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. Now is the time to make real the promise of democracy and transform our pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our national policy from the quicksand of racial injustice to the solid rock of human dignity. He's basically saying it's, it's go time now, because things do not on their own inevitably improve. There has to be certain things set in motion, people who want to do good and do God's will in conjunction with God can bring about justice and goodness. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. At first, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of an extremist. I began thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency, made up in part of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, are so drained of self-respect and sense of somebodiness that they have adjusted to segregation, and in part of a few middle-class Negroes who, because of a degree of academic and economic security, and because in some ways they profit by segregation, have become insensitive to the problems of the masses. The other force is our bitterness and hatred, and it becomes perilously close to advocating violence. Um... So Malcolm X would be a good example of that side of the coin. It is expressed in the various black nationalist groups that are, that are springing up across the nation, the largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement, nourished by the Negro's frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. This movement is made up of people who have lost faith in America, who have absolutely repudiated Christianity, and who have concluded that the white man is an incorrigible devil. I have tried to stand between these two forces, saying that we we need emulate... Okay, this is interesting. He's the moderate. Okay, anyways. He, he didn't say it with the label, but he's being the moderate. All right. S saying that we need emulate neither the do-nothingism of the complacent nor the hatred and despair of the black nationalist, for there is a more excellent way of love 
and nonviolent protests. I'm grateful to God that, through the influence of the Negro church, the way of nonviolence became an integral part of our struggle. If this philosophy had not emerged, by now many streets of the South would, I am convinced, be flowing with blood. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who employ nonviolent direct action, and if they refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, Millions of Negroes will, out of frustration and despair, seek solace and security in black nationalist ideologies, a development that would inevitably lead to frightening racial nightmare. Um, Islam does a really good job of recruiting people from prisons, um, people who are depressed, disenfranchised men, um, who feel like they have no control over their world, and um, and so uh, oppressed Historically oppressed group of people is good pickings for Islam. So he's basically, MLK is basically saying without what I've done, without taking this middle road, um, it would be a nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The yearning for freedom eventually manifests itself, and that is what has happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom, and something without has reminded him that it can be gained. Consciously or unconsciously, he has been caught up by the Zeitgeist, and with his black brothers of Africa, and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, and the Caribbean, the United States Negro is moving with a sense of great urgency toward the promised land of racial justice. If one recognizes this vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community, one should readily understand why public demonstrations are taking place. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations, and he must release them. So let him march. Let him make prayer pilgrimages to the city hall. Let him go on freedom rides and to and try to understand why he must do so. If his repressed emotions are not released in non-violent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat, but a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I have said that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into creative outlet of non-violent direct action. And now this approach is being termed extremist? But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use use you and persecute you. Was not Amos, uh, who's a minor prophet from the Old Testament, if you didn't know, an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of our Lord Jesus Christ. Was not Martin Luther, which guys, this is uh, Martin Luther, who was a reformer of uh, the church during the Reformation. Okay, anyways, was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Guys, remember, he's in jail. He doesn't have Google. He doesn't have a library of books. He's read all these people's works to the point of memorization so that he can actually use them and sound intelligent, not just sound intelligent, but make a reasonable, good argument. Blows my mind. Can't name a single politician that does that. Which annoys me. Okay. 
Huh. This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. I'd hoped that the white moderate would see this need. Perhaps I was too optimistic. Perhaps I expected too much. I suppose I should have realized that few members of the oppressor race can understand the deep groans and passionate yearnings of the oppressed race, and still fewer have the vision to see that injustice must be, must be rooted out by the strong, persistent, and determined action. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers in the South have grasped the meaning of this social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still all too few in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, such as Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, James McBride Dabbs, Anne Braden, and Sarah Patton Boyle have written about our struggle in eloquent and prophetic terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets of the South. They have languished in filthy, roach-infested jails, suffering the abuse and brutality of policemen who view them as dirty nigger lovers, unlike so many of their moderate brothers and sisters. They have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action. Antidotes to, the com to combat the disease of segregation. Let me take note of my other major disappointment. I've been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions. I am not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stands on this issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand on this past Sunday in welcoming Negroes to your worship service on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of this state for instigating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say this is one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the court of life shall lengthen. This reminds me of a uh, pastor of mine I used to have, basically for a long time made fun of televangelists, like in his sermons, which is easy to do, and it's also really, can be really funny. But eventually he was convicted of it, and he basically said that uh, the Holy Spirit told him that, that those are his church also. Not saying that all televangelists are legit, but basically, he was saying that the church is so sacred, you should love it, remain devoted to it, because it's the bride of Christ. And no one likes their bride being denigrated in public. It's just not what you do. Jesus is jealous for it. And so, I like that Luther, after giving a Martin Luther King Jr., after giving reasons for being angry and upset with the church at the same time doesn't denigrate it. Whereas many others have fallen into the pit of they've had a bad experience with the church, so now they hate it and they think it's a terrible institution and X, Y, and Z. Um, he thinks that there is 
there's room for it for reform. You love, if you love, say, your child who has gone astray in areas enough, you want them to reform and to come back to it. You love them. You don't hate them. You don't criticize them. You love them and try to bring them through it. Now, sometimes that does mean that you call out their flaws like he's doing here, right? You can call out the flaws, but at the end of the day, you remind them that, that you love them and you're dedicated to them. Um, but he's this is like the third time MLK has brought up that he is disappointed in various factions that have been not complicit but complacent. And I, you can you can you get a sense for his exasperation and his tiredness of going about this fight with what he regards as too little in the way of help from the pe- very people who should be helping. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protests in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthesizing security of stained glass windows. Anesthetizing. I can pronounce. In spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as a channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is the law, but I have longed to hear white ministers declare, Follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. Boom! He's right on the money there. Two things. One, the Negro is your brother. Going back to what I was saying earlier, this is showing why it's right, giving philosophy as to why it is correct, some sort of foundation, some sort of basis, not just a platitude. Instead, you follow it because it's morally right, because this is what God has demanded of us. And then secondly, because that person is made in the image of God, doesn't matter what color their skin is. Okay, in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues. Those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to completely otherworldly religion, which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between the sacred and the secular. I have traveled the length and breadth of Alabama, Mississippi, and all the other southern states. On sweltering summer days and crisp autumn mornings, I have looked at the South's beautiful churches with their lofty spires pointing heavenward. I have beheld the impressive outlines of her massive religious education buildings. Over and over, I have found myself asking, What kind of people worship here? Who is their God? Where were their voices when the lips of Governor Burnett dripped with words of interposition and nullification? Where were they when Governor Wallace gave a clarion call for defiance and hatred? Where were their voices of support when bruised and weary Negro men and women decided to rise from the dark dungeons of complacency to the bright hills of creative protest? This reminds me when another pastor of mine happens happens to be African-American. He was talking to me one day after like a Wednesday in service um, and we were there and basically he was saying 
my wife and I recently watched this movie on abortion. We never really thought about this before, but we're very convicted in our hearts to actually stand up and say something about this. And um, basically he was saying, as a church, we've been complacent on the issue of abortion, which is the mass, you know, killing of over 60 million human beings since Roe v. Wade was instituted in the United States. And uh, so he basically wanted to figure out how to go about uh, not being complacent anymore as a church in that regard. And I told him one thing he could do is create redemption groups, which is an old church called Mars Hill that Mark Triscoll used to run, had redemption groups, and I thought it was like the most wonderful thing, which is basically these are groups for women who have had abortions, who come to the church and receive love and counseling um, in with an understanding that they aren't judged and that they're forgiven in Christ for what they've done. I said, that's a great way to reach reach the culture, is to love women who have had abortions. Because those are going to be the ones that are going to give the testimonies, right? If you want to make eventual societal change, reach the people that it's affected. Um, in any case... Sometimes churches are complacent on social issues where they shouldn't be complacent. Um, And this is what Martin Luther King is saying. Okay, yes, these questions are still in my mind. In deep disappointment, I wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, the grandson, and the great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ. But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. True. If you look back before Christendom was created, at what pagan societies uh, allowed and did and believed, you will know that Christianity then set the tone the thermostat for society. Um, just about everything we, we love about Western civilization stems from Christianity in the one hand, and on the other hand, from uh, borrowed from the Greeks and the Romans in their political structure. But um, the church has lost its position of cultural relevance in the modern age, and... Martin Luther King at this point is saying that basically the church needs to step up. And here we are, uh, 40, 60 years later, roughly a little more than that. And I think we could say the same thing. Okay. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Those are some of the things I was telling you about as far as paganism, infanticide. And we can see even now, because the Christian's churches um, 
influence on society has waned so much that infanticide is actually being discussed again. There's a, a governor um, of, I think it's Virginia, who was talking about basically if a, if a, with a bill they were trying to pass, if a baby's born alive, that the baby would be kept warm and comfortable while the physician and the mother talked about whether or not to keep the baby. The uh, dreadful conclusion is if the mother decides he doesn't want, she doesn't want to keep the baby, the baby dies. And that's infanticide. It's killing of an, of a baby that's already been born. I mean, we're stretching morality so far. And part of that, in my opinion, is the Christian church has dropped the ball, especially between the, you know, 1970s to the 1990s, especially on the front of families. Anyways, um, all right. Infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of the things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th, for the 20th century. That's where it is now, guys, if you, didn't, if you didn't know. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Perhaps I have once again been too optimistic. In, or is organized religion too inextricably bound to the status quo to save our nation and the world? Perhaps I must turn to my faith to the inner spiritual church, the church within the church, as the true ecclesia and the hope of the world. But again, I am thankful to God that some noble souls from the ranks of organized religion have broken loose from the paralyzing chains of conformity and joined us as active partners in the struggle for freedom. They have left their secure congregations and walked the streets of Albany, Georgia with us. They have gone down the highways of South on torturous rides for freedom. Yes, they have gone to jail for us with us. Some have been dismissed from their churches and have lost the support of their bishops and fellow ministers, but they have acted in the faith that that right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. Their witness has been the spiritual salt that has preserved the true meaning of the gospel in these troubled times. They have carved a tunnel of hope through the dark mountains of disappointment. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham, even if our motives are at present, even if our motives at present are misunderstood. We will reach the goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom. Jeez, it's true. Abused and scorned though we may be, our destiny is tied up with America's destiny. Before the pilgrims landed at Pil Pil Plymouth, we were here. Before... I'm not even going to get... It's like I, I want to get into that. I don't want to get into that. There's a key and peel sketch. Basically, someone was uh, talking. It's uh, someone was being MLK. The other one, the other actor was being uh, Malcolm X. One of them said, "Like uh, we didn't land at the Rock of Plymouth. The Plymouth, the Rock of Plymouth, landed on us." Talking about how African Americans didn't really have a choice because, well, they were sold from their tribe in Africa and carted over to America. They didn't. They weren't pilgrims in the same vein as the early settlers were because they were slaves but i love that mlk sort of cuts through that and basically says no we're americans just like anyone else and i wish that that spirit was alive and well in america 
because a lot of times people, you know, hate on and rag on America in the midst of trying to change it um, instead of embracing the fact that they are Americans also and that the aim of America is good. The underlying constitution is good. I'm just ra- I'm rambling at this point trying to say something that I don't have enough time to say. So here we go. Um, Before the pen of Jefferson echoed the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence across the pages of history, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored in this country without wages. They made cotton king. They built the homes of their masters while suffering gross injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of a bottomless vitality, they continued to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the opposition we now face will surely fail. We will win our freedom because the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping order and preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking teeth into unarmed, non-violent Negroes. I doubt that you would so quickly commend the policemen if you were to observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro girls, if you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you were to observe them, as they did on two occasions, refused to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I cannot join you in your praise of the Birmingham Police Department. It is true the police have exercised a degree of discipline in handling the demonstrators. In this sense, they have conducted themselves rather non-violently in the public. But for what purpose? To preserve the evil system of segregation. Over the past few years, I have consistently preached that non-violence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. I have tried to make clear, clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. Aha! You Kantian you? So MLK is apparently a Kantian, which, in my opinion, aligns with Christianity very well. The opposite being utilitarianism. Anyways, but now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, or perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. Perhaps Mr. Connor and his policemen have been rather nonviolent in public, as was Chief Pritchett in Albany, Georgia, but they have used the moral means of nonviolence to maintain the immoral end of racial injustice. As T.S. Eliot has said, the last temptation is the greatest reason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. Totally side topic, and I don't know how much it could possibly be related to this, but um, today they also did uh, a march in Virginia for gun rights, and I saw an interview with the local police sheriff who basically said if our government actually creates these laws, city laws, that violate the U.S. Constitution, the Second Amendment, and violate the Constitution of Virginia, we will not enforce those laws. So in this case, um, laws that are unjust, the police force are not going to enforce them and by moral means because they would be able to, by moral means, enforce them because they work for the city. But they're going to be enforcing unjust laws. So I guess MLK would applaud those that that police officer. Um, whereas these ones in Birmingham, not so much. Um, all right. 
I wish you had command, commended the Negro sit-inners and demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage. I wish you would have commended them, okay? Their willingness to suffer and their amazing discipline in the midst of great provocation. One day the South will recognize its real heroes, which it has now. Praise God. They will be the James Merediths, with the noble sense of purpose that enables them to face jeering and hostile mobs, and with the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of the pioneer. They will be old, oppressed, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride segregated buses and to respond with ungrammatically profundity, ungrammatical profundity to one who inquired about her weariness. My feet is tired, but my soul is at rest. I'm assuming he's talking about Rosa Parks. I'd also like to say, I've had a modern education. I enjoy reading, but MLK absolutely outclasses me in the use of the English language. Profundity. Ungrammatical profundity. This man was great. Alright, they will be the young they will be the young high school and college students, the young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting in at lunch counters and willingly going to jail for conscience sake. One day the South will know that when these disinherited dis inherited children of God sat down at lunch counters. They were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. I love this language. (laughs) He keeps bringing about America as a dream, something that is shared across all ethnicities, across, um, socio-economical situations and I wish I pray to God that that kind of understanding comes back to the western world because we've gone to the point where we say diversity is our strength so much we have forgotten that it doesn't matter how diverse you are if you do not agree on the same singular principle love of the nation love of the same God There has to be some form of cohesion, and then the diversity works amidst that. Think about the body of Christ in Ephesians, talking about how there's the nose that smells, and the foot, and the hand, and how the eye can't say to the the foot, I don't have need of you. And Paul basically says, all of these are parts of the same body of Christ. Okay? So there is diversity among the believers in the church, but they're all part of the same body of Christ. When you look at the founding fathers, okay, they created a society, um, and at the same time, they all belonged to, even though they were, they were part of different churches, they were all going to church. So they all agreed on certain fundamental principles, even though they disagreed, and sometimes very heavily in the case of like Thomas Jefferson, on certain aspects of it. But there was an underlying thread that wove them together. America has the wonderful opportunity to weave people together under the American dream, under um, under basically patriotism in a country that has afforded prosperity and freedom in the midst of a, of a, a world that is historically evil <laughs> and oppressive and unprosperous. It's not to say uh, we have ironed everything out, but there's certainly a lot to be proud of and that can hold us together despite our multiple differences. One of those things we can be proud of, civil rights movement, ending slavery, 
You know, there's lots of things to be proud of. And then secondly, he talks about um, not just the American dream, but for the most most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage. This is a shared common heritage among the society in their Judeo-Christian um, faith. So he's basically uniting people who are fun, who are different, not fundamentally, but on the surface. This kind of language needs to come back in vogue in modern America, or we're going to be torn apart. Okay. Thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Amen. Praise God. Okay. I don't see why no one understands this anymore. Okay, never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can I do when... What else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think long thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationists or a civil rights leader, but a fellow clergyman and Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities and in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Scintillating? Scintillating beauty? Man, I gotta increase my vocabulary. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr., Okay, that's the end of his letter. And what a letter that is. Um, uh, frequently, not frequently, I'd say maybe once or twice a year, I get to visit, get to. I don't like the town that much, but I visit Memphis, um, usually on shoots. When you go there, if you ever get a chance to go, check out the hotel um, there where Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. They actually show you exactly where he was killed. They show where the shooter was across the street. And then there's all kinds of facts and stuff. It's basically a, it's been turned into sort of an exhibit or a museum. It's just like right on the street. It doesn't cost anything to look at it because it was an, a motel out, you know, an outdoor one. Um, every time I go there, I get really solemn and sad. And um, I've made this argument before um, that I feel like America peaked in 1969 and i feel like the day martin luther king jr was assassinated was the 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 day before i guess i should say was the height of what people would call american exceptionalism and ever since then um i feel like we've really screwed it up there were some things that were being traded off leading up to that that i, I wish wouldn't have, but for me, I mark his death as the day that America started to decline as an empire. And no one agrees with me on this point, okay? Which is fine. But um, 
for me, the the last 30, 40, 50 years since then, we've just seen a a decline in the quality of people leading us. Martin Luther King Jr., despite his personal life, which may have been ungodly in regards, um, was a man of, of virtue in of all other regards that we know of. And the intellectualism he employed, the philosophy he studied, the theology um, that he used to fight injustice, all of that's been thrown under a bus since then. It's hardly ever employed. When's the last time you heard anyone speak or write like that in modern history who leads us in a society? Um, and so for me, that's one of the saddest days in American history is the day that that man was assassinated. Um, so he's definitely a man that I believe we should celebrate. One day history might forget about him. I hope not. But what I really hope is that people emulate him in a lot of his regards. Once again, maybe not personal life. But in the other areas of his life, he's definitely a man worth emulating and celebrating. And I hope that you, in the future, spend MLK Day thinking a little bit about how integral he was, how God used him, despite his flaws, to bring about change. And remember the basis and the foundation that it was brought about on, because if we lose that, if you lose America... America Dream, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Judeo-Christian faith. If you strip social justice of those things, you're going to end up with a perversion and a corruption. And that's, that. I mean, that's what Satan is good at doing. It's taking something good and stripping it of the foundation that made it good and fooling people into believing that it can still be good. So, until next time, this is James from The World's Last Night.